our time in the Word. Slussers are going to be working with them today. So young people head on out. And you're already there in Mark chapter 8, so you don't have to turn there. You can just act like you're interested. All right, so there you go. I do have a question for you, though, this morning. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Think about that question for a moment. If I were to ask you to raise a hand or to, to even call out, I'm sure many of you would be able to share with us who Jesus is. But your answer to that question is very, very important. And the reason why is because no one can have a relationship with God unless they have a right understanding of who Jesus is. Now, that's a very straightforward statement, I know, but it's true. If you don't understand who Jesus is, if you can't say, I know who Jesus is, if you don't have the right answer, by the way, a lot of people think they know who Jesus is, but they don't. If you don't have the right answer, you can't have a relationship with God. So this morning, your answer to the question, who is Jesus, is vitally important. And I hope you will learn from the Bible today, not my opinion, but from the Bible today, who Jesus is. That's the first thing we're going to answer. We'll answer a couple other questions as well that we'll find laid out for us in Mark chapter 8. We're going to begin today in Mark chapter 8, verse 27. So follow along, if you would, as I read. The Bible says, And Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? There we go with the question, right? Who is Jesus? And they answered, John the Baptist. But some say Elias, and others one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answereth and saith unto him, Thou art the Christ. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake in the Gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." Let's ask God to give us understanding today as we pray together. Father, we need your help. We need you to open our eyes to behold the wondrous things that are found in your book, the Bible. Thank you for giving us and thank you for directing Mark and for your spirit working to direct him to write by inspiration these words for us so that we might have a clear picture of who Jesus is, what he has done 
and what we need to do in response. And I pray that today you would stir the hearts of those that are here. If there be any here without Jesus Christ, may this be the day of salvation for them. For those who know you, may this be a day when we, they make the decision to follow you if they aren't already. And we'll thank you for how you'll challenge us today from this beautiful passage of Scripture, an important passage of Scripture. And we pray these things and ask them in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a lot of people that do not understand who Jesus is. In his work, Mere Christianity, a man by the name of C.S. Lewis said this about Jesus Christ. He said, it is a very foolish thing when people say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a, a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice, he wrote. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he is a madman man, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus wants you to know who he is. He proved that by his life. And he told us in this very passage a number of things we need to know about him. And it's my prayer that you will understand clearly who he is. And as a result of that, you're going to have to make a decision today whether you're going to accept what the Bible says about Jesus or what you think. And it's my prayer that you'll accept what God has said because the Bible is the very word of God. So there are three points to the outline today. There really are kind of three sections that we read in this portion of Scripture. So we're going to see, first of all, his person. And I want you to see that Jesus is ultimately the Savior now, that word isn't used here, but I think you'll understand it better as we talk about who Jesus is. That interesting question Jesus posed to his followers. But he didn't start out by saying, who do you think I am? He started out by saying, who do the people say I am? Now, Jesus had had a ministry, an earthly ministry. In fact, we've been reading about that in the book of Mark in the first seven chapters. We've gone through and we've seen Jesus in all sorts of places, doing all sorts of things, doing miraculous works. But in every place he went, his main focus was preaching and teaching. And as he preached and as he taught people the truth of God, he preached about the kingdom of God. And he actually shared with people and, and proved by his deeds that he was indeed more than just a man, as C.S. Lewis uh, referred to and as this passage of Scripture reminds us of as well. So Jesus wanted to know, well, what were the people saying? You know, they wouldn't tell him, tell him it to his face. They wouldn't say those kind of things. They would talk to the disciples. Isn't that how people usually do things? You know, they talk to everyone else rather than the person. You remember that happened in school all the time, right? A girl likes a guy, so she talks to a girl who talks to a guy who talks to that guy to find out if the guy likes her. You know, you know those things go on all the time, don't they? Never talk to him straight. Never go, do you like me? 
You know, you always got to go through mediators, you know, whatever. So that was, that was a sense, in a sense, what's going on. People were talking. People were talking about Jesus. Who is this Jesus? And so when he asked that question, they shared, and they were very open with Jesus. Well, you know, a lot of people think you're John the Baptist. Uh, that's an interesting statement, isn't it? John the Baptist had just been killed. In fact, we read about that a, a short time before this. Uh, just take a moment and, and look with me. Back in Mark chapter 6. In Mark chapter 6, there's a story of King Herod and what King Herod did in taking the life of uh, John the Baptist. And King Herod heard of him talking about Jesus in verse 14 of Mark chapter 6. For his name was spread abroad. And he said that John the Baptist is risen from the dead and therefore mighty works to show forth themselves in him. Notice verse 15, because it's interesting. The same things the disciples said, basically these people said. Others said that it is Elias. And others said that it is a prophet or is one of the prophets. But Herod heard thereof, and he said, it is John whom I beheaded. He is risen from the dead. Herod was convinced, absolutely convinced, that Jesus was John the Baptist risen from the dead. Others, again, thought, by the way, I put it this way in my own, the view of the casual observer was this, Jesus was something special. Don't miss that. Now, they were wrong, but they were right. Jesus was something special. In fact, the truth is, they were saying that he was resurrected from the dead. Now, I mean, you take any one of the answers that they gave, and all of them say that Jesus had to be someone miraculous. That's the truth. The casual observer thought, Jesus is something special. He's something unique. He's something amazing. He's one of the prophets. Well, the prophets, if you don't know, we're all dead, okay? It's Elias. Well, Elias was, get this, dead and had been dead for hundreds of years. Uh, John the Baptist. Well, John the, Herod knew that he had killed John the Baptist. He said he's risen from the dead. So those views of Jesus all said, he is something special. But I want you to know something. That's not the right view of Jesus. He is something special, but he's far more than that. And if you only view him to be something special, as Herod did, as the people did, and my friends, I tell you, you cannot have a relationship with God. Because a relationship with God requires that you see Jesus as more than just someone special. By the way, there were a lot of religious people that saw Jesus as someone special. We can read about and don't turn there now, but John chapter 3 talks about a man named Nicodemus, a religious, a Pharisee, a religious leader, someone who's supposed to, to know the truth about things and someone who's supposed to search out the truth, and he was. And he came to Jesus, the Bible tells us, by night, and he, the same came to Jesus by night, John 3, 2 says, and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. My friends, a lot of people have views of Jesus Christ, and they view him as something special. They view him maybe as something as someone miraculous, as Herod did, as the people did. They all say, we think you are something special, but Jesus is more than that. And only having that understanding of him uh, will leave a person ultimately hopeless as far as having a relationship with God. Because he is more than that. And our passage actually reveals that truth. Because in Mark chapter 8, if we go back there and take a look 
after the men, they share the answer of the men and of the people in verse 28, John the Baptist, Elias, and one of the prophets, Jesus then turns the question to his followers. Okay, guys, you've been with me. You've seen me. You've observed everything. You've heard my teaching. You've heard my preaching. You have observed the miraculous works that I have done. So who, what do you think? Who am I? I'm telling you that the answer of Peter was directed by the Holy Spirit of God. At least another passage of Scripture tells us that truth, and we don't find it in this passage. It was directed by the Holy Spirit of God, but it is the right answer. It is the only answer by which a man can have eternal life, and it's something you have to understand. Jesus, their answer, was the Christ, the Son of God, the one that was promised in the Old Testament, the term Christ is a reference to the Messiah. In the Old Testament, God promised that a Messiah would come. The Jewish world looked for a Messiah. Do you know the Jewish world still today looks for a Messiah? It's very interesting that one of the first times I ever met Roger Copenhagen, who many of you know, who's come to our church a number of times. First time I ever met him, a Jewish man. One of the questions he asked me is, um, you know, Jews believe that the Messiah is coming again. Do you believe that? Interesting question, isn't it, from a Jew? A Jewish man who believed that the Messiah is coming again because Jews still believe that. By the way, he is. Unfortunately, the thing that many Jews miss and the problem that the Jews have is they never didn't see Jesus as the Messiah. They didn't understand that he was the one and that he actually was going to come two times. The first coming was going to be to provide a way for sin to be forgiven. The second coming will be in great power and glory. In fact, I believe it's Zechariah who said, they will look on him whom they have pierced. There will be a day when they see the Messiah and it will be Jesus the Christ, the one talked about in this passage, the one that, um, that Jesus asked the men, who do you say that I am? You see, you've got to have the view of the committed follower if you're going to become part of the family of God. You have to see Jesus as he truly is. No, Jesus isn't just a miracle worker. Jesus isn't just someone that's pretty special. Jesus isn't just someone that, well, he's, he's, I believe he's one of the people that are, one of the prophets that's risen from the dead. No, Jesus is more than that. He is the Messiah. He is the promised one that was, was sent by God, promised in the Old Testament. Take a moment, if you would. I, I love the book of Isaiah, I think, has probably more references than any other book in the Old Testament to the coming Messiah and some very specific ones, some very pointed ones. And there's one that we look at always at Christmas, but it's not just a Christmas message. Turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Would you just take a moment? I want you to see it. Because in many places in the Old Testament, God said, hey, look, I'm sending a Messiah. He's going to come. Now, the Jew has a view that the Messiah was going to come, and the first time he was going to come and set up a kingdom. But that wasn't the plan of God. We are in the end times. Jesus came the first time again, and I've already said to be the Savior, the, the, the Christ, and he's going to come again, and he will come and become the ruler of
of this world, and he will rule with a rod of iron. It's during what we call uh, the millennial kingdom for a thousand years. He will rule and reign, and he will prove himself as God. And that's going to be the one that is talked about in Mark chapter 8, Jesus. He is the Christ. And I love Isaiah chapter 9 because in that passage, uh, and Isaiah 53 as well, but, I, but in that passage it pictures this one, this child that's going to be born who was Jesus. Look in verse 6. For unto us a child is born, and un, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Let me tell you something. Isaiah was picturing the whole, the whole scene. He was talking about a child being born, the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. He was indicated, and he was talking about the end time when Jesus will set up a kingdom. But he wants us to know that there is a Messiah coming, and Jesus was that Messiah. He was the promised one. He was the one the Old Testament said would come. Now, do you have to see Jesus that way in order to be saved? And the answer is yes. If you don't understand that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the promised Messiah, that he is God come in the flesh, because that's what Isaiah chapter 9 says. He's the everlasting father. That he is God who came in the flesh to die for the sins of the world. If you don't understand that, you can't be saved. He is the Christ. That view of the committed followers is the view that someone has to have if they want to be part of the family of God. You say, oh, come on, really? Do you have to believe that? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You have to see Jesus, but you have to see him as he is and he truly is the Christ that was the question he asked who do people say that I am and you know what they all have it wrong who do you say that I am you're the Christ you've got it right you've got it right do you know Jesus himself said if you don't believe he's the Christ you can't be saved in John 8 24 he said this I said therefore unto you that you shall die in your sins for if you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. You say, what was that phrase, I am he? Is that all that important? Well, it's interesting because if you see in your Bible, the word he is italicized. And there's a reason why. Because Jesus said, if you believe not that I am. Does that sound familiar to anyone? you understand the Old Testament, God presented himself as the great I am. Jesus was making a powerful statement in John chapter 8. He said, look, if you don't believe that I am, that I'm God, you can't be saved and you will die in your sins. There is nothing more important for you to know in this, in this message. Well, actually, there's, there's, the next part is also equally important. But there's nothing that is more important than understanding who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? If you answer that question, anything other than he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the one promised of God to come to be the Savior of the world, then you haven't understood Jesus as he truly is. But if you would answer like, the, like Peter did and like the disciples did and say, you're the Christ, then my friends, you've taken, if you would, a very important step in becoming part of the family of God.
because you got to see Jesus as he truly is. Someone was explaining that uh, in this world today, we live in, in a day in which people make their own reality. And I'm telling you something, you can't make your own reality and get to heaven. And they used it by explaining, actually, a very interesting way. They said, my wife read to me the story of Winnie the Pooh. Now, I don't know about any guy that would ever let his wife read the story of Winnie the Pooh, but, you know, whatever. Anyway, he said, I was listening to the story of Winnie the Pooh, and in chapter 8, when my wife read this to me, the story is about childlike animals that have been assembled by Christopher Robin for an adventure, and they were off to discover the North Pole. And so they go on this journey. Well, it's a meandering tale, he said, in which everyone takes everything with complete seriousness, although no one understands what's going on. Each character contributes something essential to the quest. Along the way, Rue falls into a stream, and he needs rescuing, and everyone pitches in. Pooh picks up a pole, fishes him out, and the emergency is over. And the animals are talking it over while Pooh stands there with this pole in his hands, and Christopher Robin looks at him, and he says, Pooh, where did you find that pole? And Pooh looked at the pole, and he said, I just found it. I thought it ought to be useful. I just picked it up. Pooh, Christopher Robin said solemnly, the expedition is over. You have found the North Pole. Oh, said Pooh. The animals go on with their conversation for a while while Christopher Robin gets them back to attending to the North Pole that they were trying to discover and that Pooh had discovered. They stuck the pole in the ground. Christopher Robin tied a message to it. North Pole discovered by Pooh. Pooh found it. And they all then went home. Great story, isn't it? Here's what the preacher said. He said, I, what I saw as I was listening is that's the culture in which I live. He said, my friends all around me claim to know who Jesus is. They claim to know what, what truth is. They claim to know what is right. And no one can question them on that. No one can say you're not right. No one can say you're wrong. Everyone's view is equally right. So look, if what Pooh picked up is the North Pole, it's the North Pole because we said it. But my friends, you can't do that with Bible truth. You can't say Jesus is who I think he is. You have to say who, Je who God says Jesus is. You can't just come up and, and, and he said, and he went through and he said, cults do this with Jesus. Many Christian religions do this with Jesus Christ. They say, this is who Jesus is. This is what we think Jesus is. Now, Christopher Robin can declare that pole to be the North Pole, but it doesn't make it the North Pole. And you can claim Jesus is, is Elias. You can claim Jesus is, I don't, I don't know, you can claim he's anyone, but Jesus is the Christ. And unless you understand and accept that, you're not accepting the truth. So, just as in the story, there might be people who come along saying, Jesus is, this is the North Pole. But they are wrong. There's only one right answer to the question, who is Jesus? He's the Christ. My friends, I'm trying to help you understand that because it is paramount to someone being saved and becoming part of the family of God. The second truth is so powerful because right after Jesus is declared to be the Christ by Peter, then Jesus says, 
let me tell you why I'm here and what my purpose is. I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. I am the one that you claim that I am, and I want you to know that I've come for a reason. And if you look at the verses that follow, he says there's his purpose. He shares what he came for. Now, my friends, last week we preached a message looking at Jesus in Mark chapter 7 and 8. We looked at a lot of verses. Amazing that this preacher got through so many verses in one service, isn't it? We looked at a lot of verses. We learned a lot of things about Jesus. We saw a lot of pictures, and we challenged you to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, listen, he's a great example. He is. He's a perfect example because he never sinned. But he is not just an example. And if you only see him as an example, and if you only understand that, well, Jesus came to teach us good things about God. He came to be the right example. Then you miss why Jesus came. So his purpose is laid out for us. Uh, look, if you would, he says in verse 31, he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly. We'll make a statement about that in a few moments. But let me tell you that this is of equal importance, this truth of why Jesus came. Who is Jesus? Well, he is the Messiah. He's the Christ. You've got to understand that. You've got to accept that. He is God come in the flesh. But you also have to accept why he came. You have to understand that, and you have to know the work that Jesus came to do. You see, Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. Those are his words in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10. In this passage, he, came, he said, look, there's a reason why I've come. And there's something that's going to happen in, in my life very soon. I am going to suffer and I am going to die. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be buried. And the third day, I'm going to rise again from the dead. And that is what Jesus came to do. And that's what Jesus expressed to these men. Look, Jesus is more than a good man who shows us what good men are like. Jesus is more than an example to follow. Although he's a great example to learn from and to pattern your life after, you can pattern your life after him and still never end up in heaven because Jesus is more than just a good example. Jesus is the Christ who came to die for the sins of the world. So his purpose was to be a sacrifice. So we learn that he is the Christ. He is the Savior. We uh, learn his purpose to be a sacrifice. The plan is revealed. It's going to come through the suffering, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus the Christ. He was only sharing, by the way, what the Old Testament spoke of concerning the Christ. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah wrote those words in Isaiah chapter 53. You could read the entire chapter. The entire chapter was not talking about Isaiah. It wasn't talking about some other man. It was talking about the coming Messiah. And the promise there is that he would die for the sins of the world, that he would be the Lamb of God. Do you know that when John the Baptist first saw Jesus Christ, one of the comments he make, made was, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. He understood what Jesus' mission was. He understood what Jesus was going to do. You say, well, why did he call him the Lamb of God? Because he was uh, picturing, because Jesus pictured the Lamb in the Old Testament sacrificial system. In the Old Testament, the Jews, when they needed to, if you would, get right with God, every year they would make an offering for their sins. And that offering was, be, which was to be a lamb, and that lamb was to be without blemish. And it was a picturing something that would come. 
their practice in the temple and their sacrifice of that animal didn't bring forgiveness of sins. It just pictured that someday God would send someone to take care of the sins of the world by giving himself as a sacrifice. He always had to have a lamb that was out blemish, and there's a reason why, because it was picturing, it was picturing someone that would come without blemish, without sin. And that, my friends, was Jesus the Christ. And when he said, look, I'm telling you what's going to happen soon, he was telling us something that's very important because you can know Jesus is the Christ and still not be saved. You can believe Jesus was the Son of God and still not be saved. You have to understand that Jesus the Christ came to die for the sins of the world. Not his sins, not his wrongs, but he came to die for the sins of the world. But he wasn't just going to die he was going to be buried, according to this, and three days later, he was going to rise again. In reading something about this passage, came across a, a guy who said this. Jesus, um, he says, a well-known preacher made this comment. Whenever Jesus spoke of the coming death, he never failed to mention the resurrection to follow. And here's the reason why. His life wasn't a dismal march to painful death. It was a triumphant walk of, to life eternal and victory. The words, as he died, said it all. It is finished. Everything was completed that needed to be completed. Every Old Testament promise about the Messiah was fulfilled in Jesus the Christ up to that point that needed to be fulfilled. He completed it all. And it was finalized three days later when he rose from the dead. And we'll celebrate that very soon, won't we? Actually, the truth is, we celebrate it every week because we meet on the first day of the week, the day of the resurrection. It was the first day of the week when Jesus rose from the dead. I said we make reference to this a little bit later, but look at again at verse 32 where he says, and he spake that saying openly. What does that mean? Well, let me explain it. Do you know that Jesus many times spoke in parables? In fact, most often when he spoke to the people, he spoke in parables. He told stories, and those stories had a meaning, and they had a, a lesson to be learned. But only those who were interested in truth would learn those stories and would learn the reason why. In fact, it's kind of interesting. You look at the life of Jesus. You look at his walk in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you find a lot of times the disciples, after Jesus gave a parable, saying, what did that mean? He's like, tell us what that meant. Lord, what was that story about? And sometimes it seemed like the Lord would say, don't you understand this one? I mean, this one's simple. You can't get this one. You can't get any of them. Uh, and, and I understand that because some of his stories are so practical. It's kind of like, how can you miss the story in this, right? I mean, at least it seems like that. But many times the disciples ask because Jesus used those stories to teach truth so that only those who were truly seeking him and truly wanted to know the truth would know it. But when it came to talking about what he was going to do, he never minced words. He didn't tell a parable. He didn't tell stories. He said, I want you to know what's going to happen to me. I'm going to die for the sins of the world. That was unlike much of his teaching. It was unlike most of his ministry as far as dealing with people. He was very straightforward, and he was talking at this time with his followers, his disciples, and he said, look, I want you to know this. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to rise again the third day so that no one, none of his followers could say, well, we didn't know that. You know what they said when he rose from the dead? 
We didn't know that. But a number of different times, Jesus told them, and this is one of those times. And that statement is important because it tells us that Jesus didn't veil this. He didn't make it like a spooky, weird, eerie thing. No, Jesus told them specifically exactly what they needed to know. He wanted them to know and all who heard exactly what was coming and what he was on this earth for. And my friends, I want you to know that too. Jesus came to die for the sins of the world. He came to pay for your sin and mine. And the truth is, I would have no hope other than Jesus Christ. I don't stand before you saying that I'm on my way to heaven, and I can say that today because, well, I'm a great guy. And you laugh at it. My wife laughs at that because she knows I'm not a great guy. Thanks a lot, dear. Love you too. You know, it's not, I don't stand before you and say that I'm saved because of anything that I've done. It's because Jesus did for me what I couldn't do for myself. Jesus came to die and to pay for the sins that I've committed, all the sins I've committed in my life so that I could be made part of the family of God. And here's the truth. He did that for you too. He did that for everyone in this room. He did that for everyone in Franklin. He did that for everyone in Spring Hill, Thompson Station. He did that for everyone in Tennessee. He did that for everyone in the United States. He's done that. He, do, he did that for everyone in this entire world, all around Ecuador or any other place in this world, the Ukraine. Jesus came to die for the sins of the world. And not just those who live in this generation, but every generation from the very beginning of time. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the Christ who came for a purpose. Not to be just a great example, although he was a great example. He came to be the Savior. And he came to save you. And there's nothing you can do to earn it, nothing you can do to win it, nothing you can do to gain it, because you don't gain a gift. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That verse says it so well. It says it so clearly. I often illustrate it this way. If I were God, and you know I'm not, and I said I had a gift for you, and let's say this, gift, this is the gift I have for you as God, and this gift represents eternal life. I have eternal life. I want to give it to you as a gift. You understand that? Got the idea? So I am... God in the illustration here, you know that, all right? I have a gift. The gift is eternal life. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, and it comes through Jesus Christ. My Bible represents Jesus Christ, and God has a gift. The gift is eternal life. The gift comes through Jesus Christ. So, my friends, if you have Jesus Christ what do you have? You don't get eternal life by being a good person. You don't get eternal life by turning over a new leaf. You don't get eternal life by changing your life. You don't get eternal life by going to church, by being baptized, by doing anything other than receiving Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ gives eternal life to all who receive him. And that, my friends, was the message Jesus shared with his followers. Who do men say that I am? You're the Christ.
Got to understand that. And then Jesus said, let me tell you why I've come. I've come to die for the sins of the world, and I want to provide eternal life for all mankind. And he did. And he did. And he offers that. God offers that as a gift today. Eternal life through Jesus Christ. If you have Christ, you have life. But as many as received him, wow, we quoted that last week and we quote it so often. But as many as received him, John 1, 12 says, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. My friends, that is the wonderful message of this portion of scripture. And that message you need to understand and accept if you never have. If you have, then let me tell you something. You have eternal life. And I think it's very interesting to me because as Jesus finishes out this, as this, finish, as this chapter is finished out, it's not like Jesus was writing this chapter, okay? But as Jesus lived this out and, and as he continues on, he shares with the people, those who are his disciples and with the people, he shares with them what they need to do. You see, God has a plan for those who receive Jesus Christ and are given this gift of eternal life. It's a gift. You can't earn it. You can't win it. You can't do anything to get it. But God has a plan for all those who are part of the family of God and who have been saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And it seems like in these last few verses, he describes what his plan is for all, all those who are saved, all those who receive him as the Christ, all those who make him uh, their savior and receive the gift of eternal life that he offers, then it seems as if Jesus Christ said, hey, look, I want you to know what I expect and what I want from you. And his plan for your life is surrender. Follow, I will follow thee. That needs to be the attitude, my friends, of those who are part of the family of God. You say, why? Because we want to be part of the family of God? No, you're already part of the family of God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So why should a, per a Christian follow Jesus Christ? Why should someone who has received Jesus Christ as Savior follow Jesus Christ? Because he gave himself for you. And do you know he actually kind of says that in this passage? And when he had called the people, verse 34 says, unto him, with his disciples also, he said unto them. So this conversation had been going on with Christ and his disciples, his followers alone. Now he calls the people together and he says, look, whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And so he's talking now about those who know he is the Christ, have already received, if you would, the fact that he was going to die on the cross for their sins. And you know what he says to those who have done that? Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. We could spend a lot of time on this. In fact, quite honestly, I seriously contemplated just preaching this separate because it's a powerful message and it's an important message. We're saved by faith, not by our works. The message Jesus here was not to people who wanted to be saved, but people who have already accepted the fact he's the Messiah. They've trusted in the death, the burial, and resurrection as payment for their sin. They're part of the family of God, and those who are part of the family of God should become disciples of Jesus Christ. And if they're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, listen, if you're here and you're saved, you're part of the family of Jesus Christ. God tells you you need to learn to deny yourself. A preacher said this, Christian spirituality isn't about sitting at the feet of some guru for a seminar at a retreat. It's not about having a nice, comfortable, safe dose of spirituality in your life to make you feel good 
whenever your thoughts run deep about ultimate questions and eternal destinies. Jesus called people to follow him, and there was only one place he was going, a cross. The true nature of spiritual living involves sacrifice, duty, commitment. And Jesus referenced that here. Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake in the gospel is the same shall save it. Let me tell you something. There's no other way to live. There's no better way to live than to live fully for Jesus Christ if you're part of his family. If he's saved you, if he has taken away your sin and made you part of his family, then here's what he calls you to, a life of self-denial. James Calvert was a missionary to the Fiji Islands. The people he was going to, believe it or not, in that day were cannibals. The captain of the ship on which he sailed tried to dissuade him. He made this statement, you will risk your own life and the life of all, lives of all those who sail with you if you go among the savages there. And Calvert's reply was, we died before we came here. That is the attitude of a Christian, at least the right attitude of a Christian, a, a death to self. Paul wrote these words in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And God calls us all to do the very same thing. Hey, listen, I've saved you. I've offered you eternal life. You accepted it. You've got eternal life as a gift. Now, deny yourself and live for me. That's the call that God gives to all those who are part of his family here today, to crucify yourself, to stop living for me. And it's interesting to me, but everything I observe in Christianity today is all about doing things for people and making them happy. When God said the Christian life is not about living for yourself and making yourself happy, it's about denying yourself and living wholly for God. It's not about being able to come to church and rock out and have a good time and leave with a good feeling about yourself. It's about coming to church and learning about the one who gave his life for you and saying, Lord, I'm going to give you everything and I'll do what you want me to do. One of the reasons we have problems today getting people to the mission field is because there aren't people that are willing to do what Jesus talked about in this passage, deny themselves. And say, it's not about me anymore, God. You gave your life for me. I'm going to give my all to you. And that's what this passage is all about. And that's what Jesus taught and what Jesus encouraged. He said, Christian living, those who are part of the family of God need to, need to deny themselves. They need to take up their cross. And by the way, that doesn't mean that you just got to live a life of misery. The Christian life isn't a life of misery. But it is a life of sacrifice. When he was saying take up his cross, some people understood that to mean I have a burden to carry in life. And uh, Have you ever met a Christian that was like, that? oh, life is miserable, but this is my cross that God's given me to bear. I've seen people say that. I've heard husbands and wives say that about their mate. You know, my wife is my, my cross God's called me to bear. <laughs> I'm not saying that, dear. Just want you to know. You know my husband, my husband, you're going to do it for me. Thanks a lot. Just people want to get me in trouble. I'm already in trouble. All right. But, but here, you know, Christ didn't call us to, uh, you know, to live for ourselves. Christ didn't call us to walk in our own life. He said to take up our cross. And our cross is not the, the suffering that we have in this life. Our cross is living the life of Jesus Christ, selfless, 
Jesus' cross was, you know what? Whatever God has for me, that's what I'll do. Do you remember how he prayed in the garden? We just read it this morning. Father, not my will, but thine be done. Your cross may lead you to Ecuador. At least it's going to do that for one family here. Lord willing, tomorrow. Your cross may be to be a witness in Spring Hill, Tennessee, so that people might come to faith in Jesus Christ. And there might be suffering in that. There might be difficulty in that. There might not. But you need to be willing to deny yourself and take up the cross, do the will of God for your life. That's what he was talking about when he said take up your cross. It's saying God has a will for me, and I'm going to fulfill that. You know, God's will for every Christian is that they share the gospel. That's part of taking up your cross. Oh, I can't witness. And you don't understand what God said when he said he'll, he'll, you'll receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you'll be witnesses unto me. Jesus promised to help you do what you need to do. Your cross is whatever God's told you to do in his word. Whatever God wants you to do, whatever path he has for your life, whether that's be a missionary on a mission field or be a missionary in Thompson Station, be a missionary at work. It's doing the work that God has called you to do, denying yourself and saying, okay, God, whatever you have for me, whatever you want, I'll do. I'll be what you want me to be. Deny yourself, take up your cross. And then we come to the song we sang as a special number, follow me. Follow me. Like Jesus Christ willing to go to the death for me. So he says, look, I want you to follow me. That's the call of Jesus Christ to all those who are part of the family of God. And you know the truth is, your life will be wasted if you don't. What's it going to profit you if you gain the whole world? And you lose that which is most important. Follow Jesus Christ. You know that word follow is interesting. It means to be in the same way with him or accompany him. Following Jesus Christ is not about doing it on your own. It's all about walking with God. That's what it is. It's saying God has a path for me and I'm going to be in that path because that's where God is. That's where God wants me to be. And when you do that, you find great blessing. William Barclay was, wrote a commentary on the book of Matthew, and he wrote something about how this tax collector became a follower. He was a tax collector, by the way, and tax collectors were hated by the Jews because they were cheats. They were greedy people who took advantage of folks. And let me tell you, there's no reason to assume Matthew was any better than that, but Matthew got saved. Isn't that great? Even tax collectors, even IRS people can be saved. I didn't, maybe you didn't know that. It's a wonderful thing. But here's what he said. He lost a comfortable job, but he found a destiny. He lost a great income, but he found honor. He lost a comfortable security, but he found an adventure the like of which he had never dreamed. It may be that if we accept the challenge of Christ, Barclay went on, we shall find ourselves poorer in material things. It may be that the worldly ambitions will have to go. 
But beyond doubt, we will find a peace and a joy and a thrill in life that we never knew before. In Jesus Christ, a man finds a wealth beyond anything that he may have to abandon for the sake of Jesus Christ. Have you found that? Look, as a Christian, have you found that? Or are you missing out on God's best because you're not surrendered? My friends, there's two vitally important messages in this portion of Scripture. The first is be saved and become part of the family of God by understanding who Jesus is and accepting his death, burial, and resurrection as payment for your sin, calling upon the name of the Lord, as Romans 10 talks about. The second is a challenge to every Christian to stop living for self and to serve God. And what a fitting message as today is our send-off Sunday. We send someone, some family, to go do the work God has called them to do. And may we all have that heart and attitude of surrender to the one who gave everything for us. Does God have your best? Are you part of his family? Does God have your best? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.